I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie is squatting on the grass and doing a poo. Now she has concluded and she's joining me and you. She is looking frisky, pleased to be outside at last. It's been quite grey and rainy, but now that's all in the past. Wow. What a song. It just came to me and just flowed right out of me. It was like I was channeling it. An extraordinary musical moment to kick off a podcast which features a conversation with an extraordinary musical man. Look, I'm getting ahead of myself. I apologise. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Hope you're doing well. It's a blustery day out here in the country fields of Norfolk, UK, in mid-July 2020. And I'm going to lay some facts on your ass about my guest today for podcast number 128, guitarist Ed O'Brien, who, I'm glad to say, is a friend of mine. I've known him for, well, properly I've known him for about 15 years now. Here's some Ed facts for you. Ed, currently aged 52, met his Radiohead bandmates in the mid-1980s while attending Abingdon School in Oxford though they didn't settle on the name that made them famous until they were signed in 1991. Though their first album, Pablo Honey, featured the outsider anthem Creep, it didn't prove to be an indication of where the band was headed musically. I remember being quite sniffy about Radiohead in those days until Louis Theroux made me a tape compilation in 1996. I still have it. I dug it out this morning. And it's called Bucky Bollocks. And on one side, it's a compilation of artists like the Rentals, the Adults, Souls of Mischief, Roy Ayers, Grave Diggaz, Marvin Gaye, and Shuby Taylor. First time I heard Shuby Taylor was on that compilation. And on the other side was The Whole of the Bends by Radiohead, which had come out the previous year and totally passed me by. Side one is labelled The Bends, and side two is labelled The Schmends. I like The Schmends, but I loved The Bends. I was on board from then on. The Bends was engineered and partly produced, I think, by Nigel Godrich, who would produce 1997's album OK Computer, and thereafter help propel the band to the outer reaches of experimental yet accessible alternative rock for years to come. So far, band members Tom York, Phil Selway and Johnny Greenwood have all made solo albums. Ed is the latest member of the band to do so, and he, as a solo entity, goes by the initials EOB. His debut album, Earth, was released this year, 2020, in April. My conversation with Ed was recorded in a nice studio 
at Universal Music's headquarters in London's King's Cross. Back in early March of this year, a couple of days before the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic. Ah, that was the good old days when the concepts of social distancing, flattening the curve, and of course, lockdown, were still sexy, fun and exciting. Just saying the opposite of what I mean there. Nevertheless, Ed and I managed to avoid the subject of the C word and rambled on instead about embarrassing Radiohead videos, stolen mini-discs, and whether the band that made OK Computer really were as intense and anxious as the 1998 documentary Meeting People Is Easy, directed by Grant G, suggested. We also talked about getting cosmic, the romance of space, whether Ed really is the 59th greatest guitarist of all time, and why he felt compelled to step out from the shade of Radiohead's mighty creative umbrella. This is absolutely great music journalism I'm doing here. But we began by slightly rehashing and updating a bit of the conversation I had with Ed about 10 years ago, which was the last time I interviewed him. Back at the end, for links and waffle. Mm. But right now, with Ed O'Brien. Here we go. talked before 10 years ago when you came on and did the show i was doing for six music yeah big mixtape i love that and Uh, you laughed at the some of the early names of radiohead that's right whirly gig shindig (laughs) Shindig. (laughs) i used a bunch of leprechauns that's right dancing around a four foot stone monument yeah, I know. I, I still, when you mentioned that, I still laugh at it. Yeah, shindig, <laughs> shindig with waistcoats and horn players. I was actually telling somebody about this yesterday, saying that, and, and it was at the same time that we had a country rock phase. Like know. Radiohead. Ra- very good. Well, there is a band there called, is a band called Radiohead, right? Yeah, yeah, who do very good country covers of Radiohead songs. Yeah. So ten years ago, though, mm-hmm. and what did we talk about? We talked about coming back off tour and making that adjustment. Yeah from being pampered and having a very strict and easy-to-follow routine to coming home where all bets are off and the responsibility is once again yours to actually conduct yourself in a mature and responsible way. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I was marvelling at your ability to do that. Or maybe not ability, but it was also at a time, you remember 10 years ago, when all our children were little. Yeah. And it was that thing that you'd get back off tour and rightly, you know, my wife. My wife. <laughs> I'm trying to phase that out. I love that. You can't phase that. <laughs> I love it. But I didn't want to put on that little voice. <laughs> I want. love it. So my wife, Susan, was at the end of her tether. She'd been holding the fort down. And you can imagine your way for... In fact, the first time when my youngest, Una, was born, six months later, I was off touring America for six weeks. And you get back off tour. And, of course, her instinct is to pass over 
the kids and say, right, you get up. And of course, you're not prepared. And it's those moments, isn't it? It's those five days. And you're, you know, like you said, you've been pampered. Everything's given to you and your life is sorted out. And then you pick up the pieces. And I actually look back on those times because it was, you know, I'm, of course, it wasn't tough, but it was challenging at times. I think you're allowed to say it's tough. Am I allowed tough. to say that? Everything is relative, okay. right? <laughs> we, we, we take it as read that yeah. you and I yeah. are the beneficiaries of privilege in yes. all sorts of ways. Yeah. But there are certain things that are immutable truths, and one of them is house politics, domestic politics yeah. is tough, whichever way you... I, I bet Jeff Bezos has <laughs> his so? days of difficult <laughs> domestic politics that people could sympathize with yeah no i think you're right there like i'm sometimes you know because of the feeling like you've you know i've won the lottery ticket i want you know that you're reluctant to say it but yeah it was tough but actually i look back on those times and i really value them because i think like those moments of rawness as a father and as, as a family it's not just a father as a in those moments when the shit's hitting the fan <laughs> you don't know what you're doing and you just hold the on shit, the yeah the you know the whole All thing and you're feeling like you're the worst dad in the world yeah. All of that stuff. And it is sometimes it's literally you just have to hold on. And I look back at those times with great affection, mm-hmm. real affection. And that kind of, particularly because now the kids are teenagers, same with you, right? Yes. So that whole time, that lack of sleep, all of that, that uncertainty. And I th- there's a kind of magic to it, right? I guess I look back at those times with mixed feelings because I did go through so much angst about yeah. being... A not very good dad. Yeah. Not very good husband. Not very, just not very good. Did you feel quite young? When you look back on it, do you think you were a kid? Do you look back on it and go, that was a, when I look back on it, yeah. I can't believe, you know, I was in my late 20s when when we had our first child. And I just think, well, I was a boy. Yeah, I know. Boy man. It's It's (laughs) It's so weird when. You know, you're legally an adult at 18. Yeah. I look at my, no disrespect to my soon-to-be 18-year-old son, (laughs) but he is not an adult. (laughs) And he would be the first person (laughs) to to admit admit it. it. Yeah, He is in some ways. Like, he's wonderfully mature and thoughtful. And so in in many of the important ways, he's very grown up. But in all sorts of other ways, like, come on, mate, you're not going to be anywhere close for another 10 years. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because you always think, I think like the previous decade, I think, oh, you know, God, I was still a kid when I was in my early 40s, almost. It feels like a different person. I wonder whether, you know, when I get my 60s, I'll go, <laughs> the 50s, I was really, you know. I wonder it's whether that it's just that accumulation of knowledge and experience and hopefully wisdom. Yeah, that I you, think it must be. Yeah. And then, yeah, you just sort of go, I've done it! And then you die. (laughs) (laughs) I've reached maturity! (laughs) And then that's it. Yeah, you just implode. Yeah. And 10 years ago, band-wise, you'd just done In Rainbows. In Rainbows came out in 2007. 2007. So we were in the throes of doing King of Limbs. Doubling up on drummers. Yeah, I mean... Clive didn't join us. He jo- only joined us on tour, but there was lots of, you know, sonic chicanery and wizardry going on with the drums. And that album was a process of we'd done in rainbows and that had been such a kind of tonic for us. Well, at least the release of it was. There was sort of like we had fire in our bellies again. 
And I think that we really wanted to go in and make another record. But the truth of it was we were kind of bored with our instruments. And that was what the King of Limbs was about, kind of putting down the traditional instruments and just trying to jam and make music in a different way, looping stuff and Serato software, which is the stuff you use with DJs use and using all sorts of stuff. And that was fun, you know. Yeah, because I can't remember if it was you or maybe Johnny or maybe I read it in an interview. The consensus seemed to be amongst the band that pretty much every record you came close to breaking up one oh, way yeah. or another. Yeah. <laughs> Just because the way you worked was so intensive. Like when those mini discs came out last yeah. year when they were bootlegged, stolen, whatever happened. Yeah. These are the mini discs, 16 hours worth thereabouts of OK Computer demos. They're Tom's mini discs. Right. Yeah. What did he leave? Oh, so someone hacked a computer with them on, right? Yeah, I think all our stuff has been, basically most of the Radiohead stuff has been archived. Yeah. And somebody just hacked in on the site and, you know, it's right. in the cloud somewhere. And then the guy that did it, there was a rumor around that he was trying to shake the band down for 150 grand. He was, or auction it to the highest bidder. Something right, like okay. That. I read that he complained bitterly. He said, no, I didn't. He said, <laughs> all I was going to do was sell it to the fans. Okay, that was it. Yeah, exactly. To the highest bidder. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well done, you. So he thought <laughs> oh, he that's all right. Highly principled because he wasn't yeah. trying to bribe <laughs> yeah. the band. It yeah. was just the fans he wanted to rip off. Yeah. But anyway, I was one of those people that eventually bought them when Radiohead themselves said, well, look, yeah. Why don't you pay for them and then you can download them legitimately. We'll give the money to Extinction Rebellion. So I found them really quite interesting. I saw you the weekend that it happened, I yeah. think. And you said, oh, God, some guys hacked these mini discs and they're all about to come out. We're not sure exactly what's going to happen. And I was thinking, ooh, I'd quite like to listen to those. <laughs> you didn't say that at the time. No, I was trying to be cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm a yeah. fan. Of course, and, and they're interesting, and, right? Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And they were really interesting. Yeah. That's sort of my ideal thing to listen to in a way. Yeah. A weird combination of songs. They almost sound like a Guided by Voices album, yeah. you know, kind of scratchy recordings yeah. of songs and then maybe a little bit of something that Tom's recorded on the tube in Japan or yeah. something. Yeah, Weird collage of sounds. And then mm. a very nice Nigel Godrich version of No Surprises or whatever, which is a bit different to the one on the album. Yeah. So it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, and it's interesting because we were all recording at the time and I think I heard some of the live stuff that Tom had recorded on his mini-disc from that and I was like, oh, wow, that's what he was hearing because his recorder was set up between him and Johnny and we were in the round. I was on the other side and the, I was just like, oh, wow, that's what it sounded like because sometimes in that rehearsal room, because it was quite loud, if Tom and Johnny were on the other side, I couldn't necessarily hear them in at such volume because there was me and Cos on on my side or whatever like that. So it was, uh, there's some good stuff because you can see like how a song like Paranoid Android came to be. Yeah. You know, the, the putting of the parts together or Karma Police. The thing to do would be to do a massive edit. Exactly. Where you put it together almost, you did a like a, a Dolby Atmos version. Put surround it, version. Surround version. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With all you guys in hologram. Yeah. That's it. That's um, the future. But you know what I mean? As a fan, like with those mini discs, the temptation is to just spend a couple of weeks chopping out your favorite bits and make the ultimate compilation. Right. The way I did when the Beach Boys released all that smile, smile stuff, stuff yeah. in the early 90s for the first time, yeah. all these segments. Mm -hmm. And I just spent weeks really? making different 
compilations of permutations yeah. of it all, you know. Yeah. And it was great. It's fun. great. But I'm always meeting, you know, musicians and artists of all kinds who get quite frustrated with people like me because it's like, well, it's somewhat antithetical to the appreciation of the art. I, I kind of think that's, that's the argument. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a bit bullshit. You know, my own personal point of view is I like to see the humanity behind the musicians. And I don't know, I've always liked that whole dispelling the myth. And, you know, I, I did a blog for When We Made Kid A, and someone was reminding me about it the other day. And the reason I did it I did, was when we first had the internet in like 2000, and every night I would do kind of dispatches from the studio. I remember, I used to read it. Right, and my whole idea was I wanted to dispel the myth that there was kind of this magic sorcery going on. Because, yes, that was Magic Sorcery Central. Yeah, for the <laughs> which band. you visited, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't know you at that time no, when, exactly. you, when you were doing all that stuff, but I knew Nigel Godrich. Yeah. And there was so much mystique around Radiohead... Yeah. And after Meeting People as Easy came out, it looked as if, wow, this is a unit that's going to implode pretty soon. Yeah. And there's a very sensitive, fragile person at the center of it. And then it must be very difficult for the people mm -hmm. around him. And I've heard you talking before about the fact that that was a hard time for you as well. Yeah, it was a hard time. But I think, you know, we deliberately constructed this kind of, this mystique, because that was in a response to... Pablo Honey and the fact that we, we we really hadn't got our shit together and we looked a bit all over the place and you know some of the photo shoots in America are a bit weird and all of that stuff and I remember like when it came to the Benz at second well who do we look towards we look towards the West Country towards Massive Attack and Portishead really and they had this incredible mystique you know they were uber cool you know the way they did their videos and it and you could construct this so it was partly self-preservation but it was also partly as a response to really kind of looking a bit naff altogether yeah. and kind of not having got that stuff. And I mean, the first time we hadn't got our shit together, we didn't know quite really what we were doing. No, there's some very funny stuff yeah. <laughs> <laughs> floating around. What are those videos where we did we oh. did a bug special and there was a video with you guys in an empty pool or something? Yeah, anyone can play guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Hornsy swing baths with turkeys and, and what those feather boas. And That's right. I remember kind of, you know... Very proudly, sort of showing because I was living with my dad at the time, and <laughs> I kind of go, "Dad, look what we've done!" And he's sort of standing there laughing, <laughs> going, going like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> I'm not proud of you, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's very good. And there was another one called "Stop Whispering." We did this video with this guy called director called Jeffrey Plantsker, and it was in L.A. and um, he was giving us the spiel, and we were sort of lapping it all up. He said. I feel the sense of alienation in this song and this guy is going to become more alienated as the song goes on. And the, the way I'm going to represent this is by putting on an old like diving bell uniform. So that's juxtaposed against some footage that we shot in this industrial, post-industrial spot that was full of asbestos. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's big rusty girders. Yeah, you and... remember? Okay, so all of that. And he, I don't want to put Jeffrey down, but he thought he was like Dino De Laurentiis. Look, you could see it go to the guy's head. He was riding around <laughs> in an open-top Jeep at 5 p.m. finding new locations. <laughs> and you find the spot. And I remember he had Phil and I kind of balancing this pincushion he he kind of pulled us in and the direction very quietly was guys and there were some hat pins in there and he said just make it your own and, 
And Phil and I sort of looked at one another. And we, I could hear the hushed tones of people going, isn't Jeffrey a genius? <laughs> <laughs> so you get this video and I remember playing it, you know, because you kind of, you know, there's uncertainty. When you, you basically knew it was pants, but you didn't want to admit it. And then, of course, you go and play it to your dad and your dad's laughing. What's, what's, what's with the guy in the diving suit? Why is he suddenly in the picture? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why is he there? Do you remember Not the Nine O'Clock News? Yeah. Nice video, shame about the song. Yeah. <laughs> it was a classic nice video. It was a perfectly nice song. It wasn't. No disrespect. No. <laughs> it was pretty crap. But it was massively pretentious. Yeah, it was video. so pretentious. And that was that's kind of that stage when you didn't, you know, you didn't know to go no. Then once Pablo Honey came out, a lot of the time in Radiohead land... 90% are saying no, 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 we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's very important because that means you have a sense of self. You know what's right. You know what feels right. You know what you want to portray. That was very much like, how do you want to be perceived? Was Stanley Donwood involved at that point? Not Pablo Honey, but he was him and Tom. Because I think the cover art and the artwork process was a little fraught for Tom on the first record. So him and Stanley had been to college and so they worked together on the Benz cover, and that was the first one right. that they did together. So that's kind of an important part of figuring yeah. out a visual aesthetic. Yeah. And then that sort of feeds back into everything the band does. That's a really nice yeah. part of the whole symbiosis with Stanley. Yeah. Often working in the studio while you're playing. I remember he was doing yeah. during In Rainbows. It was great. And, you know, I knew Stanley because he was Tom's fire-breathing friend from Exeter. And then he joined us properly in the studio around OK Computer. You know, he's with us every single album since then and been on our travels. And he's just such an important part of the whole process because, you know, remember our old studio, which you now sold, Butts Furlong? Well, the control room had this um, mezzanine level, if you like, this kind of, it was an old converted barn and it was almost like the gallery up at the top. And Stanley would set up shop there for a while. And he used to hear like at 11 o'clock at night or something, he'd go, I don't know anything about music, but this is fucking great. You know, he's such a really important part of the process and, yeah, just made it more three-dimensional, yeah. really. But then your strategy of making yourselves mysterious yes. and creating yeah. an ambience and everything sort of worked too well Yes, in tandem with, you know, a very good album and an, and an album that felt mysterious in itself you know so the the whole okay computer the the strangeness and the mystery of so much of that music yeah plus meeting people is easy uh-huh. plus all these journalists telling you that you're all geniuses well the funny thing about meeting people is easy is grant g who's a lovely guy that tour it's one perspective because every time grant turned up on tour he wasn't there for the whole tour we'd be having a miserable time but actually, we had a lot of fun on that tour as well. Where you were all just dancing around and going, we're the kings of the world! <laughs> well, <laughs> not quite. You know what we're like. Yeah. yeah, We weren't that celebratory. But, you know, deep down, it was great to feel like you'd made, or relieved in a way. I think it's more relieved that you'd made a really good album mm-hmm. and that you thought was a really good album and that people were connecting with it. So it was a very, very funny time because, you know, like all those things, it all comes to a head. I think for all of us in different ways, it, it came to a head. And obviously it's quite apparent with Tom and quite open with Tom. And you see that in the dock and, you know, he, he 
comes out in his lyrics and and the way he performs and stuff like that. But I think it came to a head with all of us in certain ways because I think it's that thing where, you know, when you've got, for want of a better word, shit, you know, you think that being in a great band and having a great album will solve all of that stuff. Uh You know, you think that, oh, that's the thing that will make me happy. Well, when you get that and you realise it doesn't make you happy, I think that's when, you know... It's a really good thing to have gone through because it was, you know, it forced me to look at myself, which was a great thing, you know, not easy. But, I, you know, I look back on it as, you know, we were kids. I mean, and that's the other thing, going back to that thing. It felt like we were kids. And I think you, especially if you've been in a band most of your working life, yeah, you get to your late 30s, not just being in a band, but being an artist, being, you know, living a sort of, quote, unconventional lifestyle or whatever there's much less pressure to achieve a certain level of emotional maturity. Yes. <laughs> In fact, the reverse is true. And so, yeah, yeah you can, ve- you know, it's no mystery why so many of these people come off the rails. Yeah, no, for sure. And all the things that are on the riders and the, the you know, it can be the cliche party if you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. But it was actually, you know, it wasn't the cliche party. In fact, it was the antithesis for Radiohead because we were so sort of, you know, we didn't want to, fulfill any kind of bad rock and roll stereotypes yeah but you know we had our own foibles why have i been moving so slow uh, it's taking ages for pages to load oh, it was like this when the engineer came he said it was fake but now it's the same i'm taking a photo with my tea to put on my instagram some people like to see the tea of another man People be tripping our tea picket Yorkshire brewing a nice picket But I can't upload Ooh, Cause my Wi-Fi's too slow Congratulations, Thank you've done you. a record. Thank you. And it's not an embarrassing stinker. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. <laughs> an you... embarrassing stink. <laughs> well, the, the press yeah. release... Uh, what was, was it? Uh-oh. Release, it was making me laugh. The, just the wording of it. Yeah. And this is quoting you. Tom, Johnny and Philip from the band are making music, Ed says. And I'm like, the last thing the world needs is a shit album by me. <laughs> and then the next line is... But suddenly, a switch was flicked. Oh, no. And the songs came pouring out of him. But I misread it as, but suddenly, a switch was flicked and the shit came pouring out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that (laughs) sounds about right. (laughs) But it's not, man. It's congratulations. Thank you. It's really lovely. And what it definitely demonstrates is your cosmic side. Great. Uh, You know, it's called Earth. Yeah. It's got a sense of the cosmic in so many ways. Yeah. It's beautifully atmospheric and moody it reminds me of one of my favorite albums apollo by brian eno love that in some ways well it's interesting you say that because for me music is very visual and one of the things for me the perspective was music from space i was obsessed with how music might sound from space right and i saw this one of the songs is called mass yeah that's one of my favorite ones so that was i took the kids to see this film called hubble which was made by NASA at the IMAX down at Waterloo. Like, you know, filling a morning, Oh yeah, yeah. you know. And it's a 50-minute film about when NASA recommissioned the space shuttle. And they recommissioned the space shuttle to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the guy 
who fixes it is an astronaut who I'd met and kind of befriended called Mike Massimino. Oh. And I'm watching it and suddenly, because they're all the crew shots there, and I was like, oh my God, I know him. That's Mike Massimino. Where'd you meet him? In space? <laughs> in Houston, of oh. course. A backstage at a gig in 2012. I get introduced to him and he shows me a photo of him in one of the space shuttles with a copy of In Rainbows. And his daughter, Gabby, had given it to him because he said to his kids, I'll take something in space. What do you want to take? And his daughter was a radiohead obsessive. So she said, can you take my copy of In Rainbows? Oh, wow. And he's an amazing guy. He's like this New Jersey, lovely, warm, big guy. He's a fucking spaceman. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, what do you want? What do you want? I'm floating in fucking space here. (laughs) And his book is amazing. It's really inspirational. And so I take the kids and you see this footage of him fixing... The, the arm on the space shuttle has got the Hubble and they're orbiting around the Earth, of course, as he's fixing it. And the view of the Earth below is just extraordinary. It's so beautiful. I was so moved by it and I became obsessed with this kind of the view of space and the bigger picture. And also, do you know the pale blue dot? Yeah, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. So that was the working title for the record. That's what I wanted to call it. Right. Because again, I came across that about six years ago and that image of the Earth... And those incredible words that Carl Sagan writes to complement this tiny dot, this speck of dust that you see in this photo and this arrow saying, this is our home, this is it. So for me, the perspective on the record was it was the micro and the macro. So it was going right down, but it was also pulling right out. Yes, it's almost as if the tracks are sequenced so that it's an alternation of that. Yeah. You sort of, we start, the first track is called Shangri-La. Yeah. And it sounds like you having some great, great party fun at Glastonbury. (laughs) Yeah, sounds right. And then you got Brazil, the second track, which is this massive epic, starts off lovely, folky, finger-picky, and then turns into this big rave track almost. Cosmic rave. Yeah, Yeah. great video as well. And then, yes, you've got these tracks like Mass, which is the one that reminded me of Apollo most, a kind of mood piece. I'm really still obsessed with that thing of the sounds of space and there's really inter- I've, been, I've been reading a lot of stuff like I, I was reading about the great god I've got that age when you know you try sure, and recall mate. you know yeah I'm glad it happens to you too <laughs> isosceles triangles that's all I can think of that Pythagoras okay <laughs> yeah Pythagoras he was a really interesting guy he talked about the music of the spheres mm. like each planet had its note had its frequency so I was really kind of interested in that and I love those NASA recordings of each planet which is really interesting what do they sound like? it's sound but what, what like what's making the sound? well I think what they've done is they is it it's radio it's, frequencies yes radio frequencies and interpretation and they've kind of they've translated the frequencies into sonic waves or something. I'm not quite sure. Sounds like bullshit to me, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that shit, don't I? (laughs) I I lap that stuff up. Yeah. And for me as a guitarist, I actually think, I realise in many ways, Eno is more of an inspiration. You know, when people say, who's your guitarist? I I mean, he didn't play guitar, but sonically, always what he did. Yeah, I love that sound. Because you forget with Apollo, half of it is kind of science fiction moodscapes. Yeah. And then half of it is almost like this quite sunny country music, like spacey twangy stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's great. It's great. And I love that ju- sort of juxtaposition of those two. Yeah, yeah. So that for me was, yeah, that, that's music from space. And when did you start getting cosmic? You know I've always been slightly cosmic, right? Yeah. Yeah, you've got more, I think you've got more I've cosmic. got more cosmic. I've been licensed to go more cosmic. So listen. I like it. When I was at school, 
It wasn't a cosmic time in the 80s, right? No. It was anti-cosmic. Yeah, anyone who said cosmic was a, I know, a wanker. I know, and exactly. And I was in the Smiths gang, which was very anti-cosmic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we're 84, minor strike, you know, very feet on the ground. Yeah. So it was always there. And then it kind of, you know, it gets suppressed down. And I think what happened with the whole acid house thing and the whole rave culture, that that opened the eyes again and yeah, the, yeah. the veil. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't fully immersed in it in a way that, because I had the band and that the band for me was everything. And, you know, I wasn't going to go out and get munted every other weekend, but I did occasionally, you know, do it. And that had a profound effect. And that whole, I think that went in deep. Mm. I mean, I've heard people who, and even academics talking about the value of, psychedelics and things like yeah. that in terms of connecting you to something important yeah and in terms of stripping away a lot of stuff that isn't important i'm too nervous i don't think i'm a psychedelics person <laughs> i've only had uh, one experience yeah with mushrooms yeah. at, at university and that went badly yeah <laughs> i mean it started out going okay yeah and then i looked in the mirror and i didn't feel connected to the reflection wow. in the mirror. Yeah. Have you ever had that? No. I think it's called a, a sort of fugue state. Right. It's like, I've read that it happens to some people when they take mushrooms, yeah. not everybody. Yeah. It was really, really alarming. It was like I was looking at a clone. Yeah, that must be scary. It was so scary. Yeah. But maybe what I was experiencing was some form of ego cancellation. Yeah. So I no longer felt connected to a physical yeah, maybe. version of myself. Yeah. And so I should have been celebrating it and dancing around <laughs> and going, I'm free, I'm free. But instead I was thinking, why is there a clone in the mirror? That's bad. Yeah. Then I went to the toilet and my knob had shrunk to the size of an acorn. <laughs> <laughs> Which can also... Have you ever heard uh, that? What, with mushrooms? Mushrooms. I can't say that that's been doesn't i mean it doesn't like it. doesn't no but but you know i'm not dispelling that it's not something it's i not something i would brag no, about no. i wouldn't make it up no i'm not sure <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> i the only i once got spiked at the reading festival oh. in a year we didn't play uh, someone gave me some acid and i and i i remember i was just like what's going on and i had an amazing night oh my god <laughs> That's my worst nightmare. I kept looking in the mirror and thinking I was Elvis Presley. (laughs) (laughs) These are classic bad drug stories. Um, I think you're... They're not for everybody, these things. No. They're really not. No, and if you have... You know, I don't know. I may well have undealt with... Exactly. ...issues. Yeah. I'm almost certain I do. (laughs) And... Yeah, if you were ever to do them, I think the yeah. people I've heard extolling their virtues in a sort of academic sense would yeah. always be doing them in, in a controlled environment yeah. with people who know exactly what's well, happening. Well, you know, they're using MDMA and mushrooms. They're doing a lot of controlled dosage for PTSD, right? you know, and a lot of stuff. And they are having incredible results. And for a treatment of addiction, I heard as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And my experience of all of those things are that what that expression, it gets you out of your head. Yes. So you get a perspective of yourself, which is often a really important thing. Extremely interesting.
my mind, your thoughts to my thoughts. Sometimes I thought to myself, like, maybe my obsession with space and sci-fi and that kind of Bowie-esque space oddity thing of alienation and the romance of space travel, I would say, you know, to generalize, that is a kind of a typically male thing. To fantasize about being out in space on your own, floating around in a tin can, and the romance of that and also the kind of romance of missing everybody on Earth. Yeah. It's a bit like being out on the road, perhaps. Like the pioneer, you know, being the great explorer. But it's also a kind of abdication of responsibility. (laughs) Meanwhile, your wife or your partner or whoever is back on Earth doing all the fucking hard work (laughs) and you're out in your tin can going, I'm romantic, I'm floating around, I'm so alienated. Yeah. Yeah. So my perspective on that is slightly different because my perspective probably formed a bit more like 2001, that cosmic scene. And my favourite film of the last 20 years, I think, is Genius is Interstellar. Mm, I love it. And don't you? And for me, it's like I'm thinking in space. And I talked to Mike Massimino about it because I'm like going, Mike, I want to go into space with you. I don't know. I say, every time I say this, I say, that I really want to go in space sometime and I want to go with you. Because we talked a lot about, about how it feels up there and how you feel. He talks about this spiritual connection and a lot of astronauts do. So it's not a feeling of alienation and isolation. It's a feeling of incredible connection. Have you heard of this thing called the overview effect? No. It's a phenomenon that astronauts have generally. They go up to space and they look down on the planet and they feel this incredible love for the planet and this connection for Earth, our home. And it's not like the sitting in my tin can. Yeah. It's big, open-hearted, fucking hell. People come back very, very changed. And he talked, Mike says, if we could send all the leaders up to space, you yeah. Know. Have any of them gone up and done drugs? I mean, you wouldn't... <laughs> you probably... Oh, that would God. be over-egging the pudding, That might be... That's a double dose. That's, <laughs> Someone's got to go up and have some will, drugs. You know... Once they do the commercial airliner thing, there will be some people, won't they? There'll be drug they'll tours. Be drug tours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Did you see Ad Astra with yes, Brad Pitt? Yes, yeah. That's quite good, isn't it? Did I, you enjoy that? I'm, I'm I mean, a, it's not... I would hesitate to recommend it, but I yeah. thought maybe you would have dug it. I started watching because I thought this is right up my straw. Yeah, dad issues. Da- dad issues. Space, I just, I, There was something Brad about Pitt. it that just... Felt, yeah, I know, and he's great. I just thought it was a bit wooden. It's not the best. It's quite clunky, but yeah. there were elements to it that I thought were quite brilliant. And yeah. there's a sequence at the beginning where Brad Pitt's character, whose dad is Tommy Lee Jones, yeah. and he's like far out in outer space and he's gone rogue. And Brad Pitt has to go and, and sort him out. And the first leg of his journey is to go up to the moon where he's going to take a shuttle off to Mars or something. Yeah. And this is in the future when space travel has been turned into a industry. And so he goes up on a Virgin shuttle yes, yeah, to the moon. that's right, exactly. And it's really nicely done. It, that's it, it, good. It's like 2001. The good. Yeah. yeah. I thought all that detail was great. Yeah. I just thought that there was something lacking. No, I mean, the actual story. Yeah. There's, there's this, I don't want to spoil it, but there are several sequences. <laughs> there's one bit where he... Um, I don't think this is a spoiler. If no. you're someone that cares deeply about spoilers, <laughs> maybe you should switch off if you haven't seen Ad Astra. But if you're normal, 
then <laughs> uh, there's one bit where Brad Pitt has to, he wants to get inside a rocket, but the rocket's taking off. So he climbs up the side of the rocket no. while it's taking off. No. And he opens the door and he gets that's in. That's preposterous. And that's I don't a- think that that's possible no that's kind of like a space <laughs> version of the dukes of hazard yeah that, they're kind of like, trying to get into the general lee right yeah right. So it's going jump off through right, the jump through the window i know it's like <laughs> okay i understand it's a science fiction film yeah it's a bit of entertainment yeah but that's no, the line i'm not you? having that that i switched <laughs> off before that so i'm really glad oh okay because i got to that stage with films now like if i'm not feeling it i give it an hour or so and it's like well, i'm not gonna watch this you know i know i, I you can tell fairly quickly yeah. So I'm really glad I didn't see it through to it. Oh, it gets more ridiculous really? than that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I have to, I'm sorry, but Interstellar is, I could watch that every week. Yeah, I mean, that's mad as well. It is mad, but isn't it based on cutting edge science? By stone scientists. <laughs> You're so cynical. <laughs> I'm laughing it up. Hey, hey, man, you know, like, oh, it would yeah. be possible <laughs> if you, like, Go with me for a second. I love that. <laughs> I love it too. I, to me, I know, but to me, I love it so much. And it kind of resonates on a way that I feel like, and I'm probably wrong here, but I can feel like almost that it's based on this kind of almost like these scientific truths. Mm-hmm. You know, I, however preposterous it might seem and that whole thing of the mirrors and the different dimensions. Oh my God, I just... I dug it. I loved I, it. Yeah. And, you know, the bit, where McConaughey's watching his daughter. Oh my age. god! I mean, I can hardly describe it without. Oh my god! To as cry. A, and as a parent as well. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's interesting because for me, I think you know I got a bit obsessed and I read about and you know obviously Kubrick 2001 played a really important part possibly for Christopher Nolan. But it's interesting when you go back to Kubrick now because I used to think I mean in fact when Radiohead made albums at one stage we like we wanted to be like the Stanley Kubrick of the musical world like Kubrick would make you know, 2001, and then he'd do The Shining, or, you know, he'd do all these different types right. of... different, Dis- distinct... Yeah, and kind of... Experiences. Yeah, distinct experiences. When you go back to the Kubrick stuff that's so interesting, Kubrick's is very, very cold and male. Mm-hmm. And it is like that sitting in that tin can. It's a very male... I did that whole thing with Susan. I said, we should watch Dr. Strange Dove. I remember that being brilliant. I love that film. Genius, right? And I watched it with her. And you know when you're watching with somebody who's going like, where are the women in this? Mm-hmm. You know, I was like awakened to the fact that, oh, yes, of course, he was in an era. Everything is very, very male. You know, the whole making of a film is very male. The protagonists are male. Whereas Christopher Nolan, there's this beautiful balance and this love between a daughter and the father. And that idea of love, for me, the message is, you know, love transcending dimensions, love as this kind of, actual force within the universe Mm. for me i I really love that whole thing of you know kubrick who was obviously a master what he did but where we are now with someone like christopher nolan where he's there's so much humanity yeah kubrick pushed the (laughs) kind of antiseptic it was almost as if emotions were a sign of weakness yeah. and had to be eliminated <laughs> to make the whole thing pure somehow yeah. Yeah. and to make it clinical and symmetrical yeah. and beautiful and which he did you yeah. know that's not to say that there aren't emotions and feelings that are inspired by watching those kubrick films no. they're subtle and they're strange but they're definitely there but yeah i mean 
Interstellar. That oh, is raw. That's right on it. And being stabbed in the gut. Yeah. And pain. to put that in space into kind of like in a, into a cosmic kind of existential setting is just genius. Mm. It was, it's such a brilliant observation, as you say, of a very particular pain that comes with watching your children. It's like the experience of being a parent is an exercise in relativity in a way because your sense of time is so different to theirs. Yeah. And it's so cruel how fast it is for you as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so torturously, boringly slow <laughs> yeah. for them. Yes. And yet you're just seeing it whiz before yeah. your eyes. They're changing from one week to the next. Yeah. And you film a video <laughs> of them being incredibly sweet. I had this video I shot of my daughter when she was about five or something, talking about animals. And it just used to break my heart every time I watched it. And as I was what it began to be too painful to watch it because I felt that it was speeding away from yeah, me so I know, fast. I know, I know. going to pivot yeah let's pivot do you get wound up i've got to stop going on about this <laughs> but um do you get wound up when you're listening to oh, i listen to sort of news podcasts and things especially american ones mm. and when the correspondent comes on so they say mike you've been following the uh presidential caucuses out there how's it going and they to a man slash woman have to begin the sentence with so 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 <laughs> it's going fine, but anyway, look, I'm going to show No, the one that gets me is not so, it's listen. Listen. Tony Blair always used yes, to do that. Yes, he loved listen. I fucking hate that. Listen. listen. and it, Yeah, listen. And Australian cricketers do it as well. Yeah. It, there's something really sinister about listen. I know what you mean. It's like you don't understand. You don't understand. Listen. Listen to me. Yeah. It's so horrible. I know Blair always yeah, He it. always does it. And maybe he always did it, but I started becoming aware of it during the war, you know. Yeah. And it was big. Listen to listen, listen the whole time. Listen, it's not that simple. <laughs> listen, we are going to have to go in and bomb some people. Listen. Oh, that's horrible, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah. is not that bad. Yeah, so is not as bad as that. No. So. So, yeah. but it's people wanting to, it's, it's in the podcast era, right. I think. It's everyone wanting everything to be a, a story, yeah. a narrative. Okay. And putting so at the beginning of a sentence kind of makes it, I think, sound superficially more like, oh, this is a, we're telling a story here. Yeah. Rather than, you can just start a sentence by saying, 
Well, you know, if you don't want to get hard into the sentence. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's my problem. I've got other problems. <laughs> Peter Gabriel had an album called So, that's didn't right. he? That's right. So. So. That's how it was pronounced, yeah. So. so. <laughs> Sledgehammer. <laughs> great album. Oh, yeah. he's great. Yeah, he's great. cosmic, isn't he? He's definitely cosmic. A lot of musicians are cosmic. Yes. It goes with the territory. Because they don't have any real responsibilities. Oh, <laughs> probably because we're free of the shackles of, of reality. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of the shackles of reality and your job. My job. And speaking of 10 years ago. Yes. Which was the last time I sat down and talked to you on mic. Around that time, I didn't realise that David Frick of the Rolling Stone magazine... Mm. You know David Frick. I right? saw him recently yeah. at a gig. He came to one of my gigs. He's a cool guy. I like yeah, him. He I love pops David. up in a lot of the music docs I like. And he, for people who don't know what he looks like, he looks like... One of the Ramones? Like the nerdiest member of the Ramones. He's such a great guy. And he has such love for music. It's like he never gets bored of it. He's got such a lovely energy and he, he's interested in musicians. And he obviously likes you because you turned up... This was in Rolling Stone magazine 2010. Right. You turned up in the list of 100 greatest guitarists. And I think it, I mean, it did say David Frick's picks. Right. So it wasn't claiming to be a definitive list. Yeah, that's very lovely. But inevitably, those lists are always framed as or read as. Yes. Here's a definitive list of the greatest guitarists of all time. Yeah. Or the greatest comedians or the greatest whoever. Yeah. And of course, it's it's meaningless, really. Of course. Yeah, we know that. But... Still quite nice to pop up. Do you remember that list? No, I never... You heard, don't seek those things out? I don't seek... Li- no, I, I stopped reading interviews and all of that around the time of OK Computer because it was kind of like it was so good and I didn't like the effect it was having on me. It was right. making me feel better about myself. I was so kind of sensitive to it and if it's bad, it's going to bring me down. So just do leave it. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Good idea. Yeah. Anyway, well, well, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you reckon? Oh, God. <laughs> In at 89 with a bullet. I don't know. What? 59. No, really? Above. Look, you see, you already no, like it. No, I don't Above really. Above <laughs> Johnny Greenwood. No. Who's number 60. You are kidding. Also above. That's not right. Angus Young. No. 96. Bert Yanch. What? 94. Robbie Krieger from no, The Doors, 91. Joan yeah. Jett, 87. Neil Young, 83. Whoa. Dave Gilmore, 82. Joni Mitchell, 72, Lightning Hopkins. All of these people you are above. I'm a fraud. Link Ray, Mick Ronson, 64. Mick, oh, my God. It says, Ed O'Brien, Radiohead's two lead guitarists I'm have not a, a lead symbiotic guitarist. relationship. Where you're, you're two lead guitarists. Well, no, Johnny's the lead guitar. I see myself as kind of like the sweeper role. Like, that's a football analogy that you won't know about. Okay. <laughs> it's sport ball. Right, all right. <laughs> and the sweeper's the guy who's, like, between the, the defence and takes the ball up the defence, up, up the field or whatever. Okay. So it's kind of, like, between rhythm and sound. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's preposterous. I, it's good job I don't... I'm not even embarrassed about it because it's just not something that... Yeah. that bears any relevance to truth. No, it's nice, though. But it's nice, obviously, yeah. I mean, I think, as well, the other thing is, listen, about Radiohead, it's like, you know, I've always felt, like, I think I've been quite open about it, I've always felt deeply insecure about my playing compared to Tom and Johnny's. Mm-hmm. They're incredible players. And I've always felt myself, if I'm honest, slightly inferior. So my 
people like Eno were so important in terms of sound and stuff because Eno's not like... He's not a virtuoso. He's not a virtuoso, and I'm not a virtuoso. And the, the, the people that I really loved as guitarists were people like Will Sargent from The Bunnymen, Johnny Marr from The Smiths, The Edge. They can be virtuosos if they want to be, but they chose not to be. You know, so they were kind of like my yardstick. So mm. Tom and Johnny were always like for me. I've always held them up in really high esteem. Continues. Uh oh. Johnny Greenwood is closer to a traditional lead man. Yeah. Those are his unwell bends at the end of Just and Paranoid Android. Yeah. O'Brien likes the wacky noises, the ghostly above the nut jangle. <laughs> That's a nice Above image. the nuts. Above the nut jangle on <laughs> OK Computers Lucky and the high reverberating pops on Hail to the Thief's 2 plus 2 equals 5 or also Ed's handiwork. Wow, I mean, I, amazing. He listens to that in depth. I mean, it's funny. I, I met somebody recently in Australia who they're the Australian radio heads and the guy comes up to me and he goes, I'm you. Oh, wow. I do your stuff. <laughs> what are they called? Uh, I can't remember. They don't have a jokey name. They do have a jokey name, but of okay. course I've forgotten it. And radio mate, and and I'm I'm like amazed. And he said, he said, I find your stuff really hard to do. And I'm like, really? And I'm just I'm always astonished that someone would listen because I I never listen to my part as a bit. It's all about the song, its entirety. Mm-hmm. It's always serving the song. It's the whole thing. I mean, that's why I think these things are a bit unfair because. Really, when somebody's singling you out, they're not because it's the collective sound a lot of the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm always surprised when people actually go, oh, yeah, that sound. I'm like, oh, really? oh wow, you noticed that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think people do. At number one. Yeah. Who do you think's number one? Um, for... It isn't Jasper Carrot. No. Okay. Is it Jimmy Page? No. Is it? Okay. Can I have a couple of guesses? Yes. What would he do? Would he go for... Well, Hendrix. Yes. Yes, of course. Sorry. I should have gone straight in there. Jimi Hendrix, number one. Yeah. Number two? Number two, Dwayne Allman. Oh, okay. I, I mean, that's that's eccentric, I would say. Yeah, that's... that's, that's... No disrespect to the mighty Dwayne, Dwayne Allman. Allman. Uh, number three, B.B. King. Okay. Is Clapton in the top ten? Yeah, I think he is. Prince? No. Listen. Doesn't place. No. Yeah. Prince was the motherfucker. Right. Him and Hendrix. I think... I mean, when you watch footage of prince play guitar it's extraordinary and you know that footage at the rock and roll hall of flame yes when they're playing while my guitar gently yeah. weeps and then he does the mic drop yeah guitar drop at the, <laughs> the end. guitar drop and danny harrison's face george harrison's son is like what the yeah and it's that, amazing it's, it's amazing. extraordinary i know people shared it. I, i'd never seen it and yeah. people shared it after he died and yeah. I saw it for the first time. He and was, it was the greatest and i i think for me like like him and hendrix because prince had that that funk, and he could do that clean funk as well. Mm-hmm. They played Kiss on the radio this morning. It was just like, oh my God. Even that, just the, just the wow, wow, you know, just amazing. Yeah, he was extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, yes. before we conclude, one of my questions was, yeah. why make a solo album, Ed? <laughs> Specifically, yeah. there's so many reasons Not as a to. guitarist in a very successful band. Yeah. Not to, especially yes. a successful band where you are, whatever you do as a solo entity is going to be compared to yeah. some extremely good stuff that you've already done as yeah. part of this unit. Yeah. And who needs that grief? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. And it actually stopped me for years doing anything 
because I, I like you know it was just like well I don't need to do anything else and and I think for me you see there was always I've always felt a bit of a hole you know with all the success and all the fantastic creativity with Radiohead there was always for me there was always something missing and I didn't know what it was I thought it was just me you, you don't realize and the moment I started writing it was the most compelling thing going into your shed and then coming up five hours later with something that I thought would sounded beautiful and so you then get to the stage where you have you demo it and it becomes I think it's a really good point that and it's and, and, and like I've had listen I've had dark nights of the soul on this like what am I doing why am I why am I stepping out and that's usually because I'm tired or I've been you know working on it for too long it's not a rational thing it's a completely intuitive thing it's like a feeling it's like listen if I didn't do this yeah, Tony Blair listen there. Oh, did I do a listen? Yeah. Oh no. Oh <laughs> just just bleep that out. Sorry. If I didn't oh that's <laughs> so oh, I'm that's making awful. you self conscious. Yeah. If I didn't do it, I wouldn't be me. And that's that's all I can say. I'm completely pulled it and I've started thinking about the second record. I, for me the last week has been amazing because I've I've kind of connected with where I think I want to go. I've had to double check myself a lot. I'm like, is this right? Is this because you know why am I? Why did I not do this 20 years ago? Why am I doing it now? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. And, and I, it's that thing you get back to. There's a kind of there is a mystery. There is a magic to music as well. And maybe you know you get the calling sometimes. You know the the ancient Greeks used to see it as a kind of a calling and the muses and put it in those kinds of terms and. You know, it happens to different people at different stages in their life. And for me, this is happening now. And it's, I'm constantly out of my comfort zone, which is the best place to be. It makes it, you know, Nick Mason from Pink Floyd has this lovely expression. He said to me, he said, well, of course, we could all be at home feeding the peacocks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably does have peacocks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's that you don't, to answer your question in a short way, I think if you are going to do something outside of Radiohead, you have to be absolutely sure that it's the right thing. And you feel that. And there's a power to what, you know, there's a, there, it just feels so right. So it's not an exercise in staking your independence no. and I, saying... I, I, no, and you, I don't know if you... But I, I've always been the opposite. Yeah. I've always hated that idea of the ego going, well, I should do something because yeah. the others are doing it. I've got nothing to prove. I haven't got a competitive bone in my body. I'm not like that. And for years... It was Radiohead, which was absorbed my whole creative part of me. And it was my family. And I was so happy and I didn't have time for, for anything else. And then this music comes along and it's, oh, wow, this is, it's like being pulled. Yeah, that's how it is. Mm. <laughs> and then do you have a sort of unspoken contract with the rest of Radiohead that you're just never going to refer to your solo is that the way it works like or do you guys <laughs> listen to each other's side projects and comment on them or is it easier if you just don't i think we listen to one another's projects but no one really comments i always hopefully say like i you know really like it i think you know tom was saying at the last meeting he said oh someone came up to him and said suspiria was the the best song that tom had ever written and tom was like really surprised and i said well it's a fucking great song mm. you know it's amazing you know, Radiohead's not, we're not like this big support unit going like, you got this, well done, you got this. You know? <laughs> High-fiving. High-fiving, you got this. I love your work, man. You got this. You are so strong. This is your moment. 
no, it's not at all like that. And you know it's not. <laughs> it's all it's all like everybody's very nice. Have you heard Eddie's album? Yeah. <laughs> What did you think of it? Yeah, I know there's that stuff going on. And I'm sure there's and listen, I'm under I one of the things I had to do is I had to let go of what I thought the others would think of it. Yeah. Because there was a part of me when I started the record, I put my radio head head on. And it's not appropriate for this record, mm-hmm. and so I. Yeah, had... there's only one track I thought that Banksters. Yeah, it's the only the... one, only one that's vaguely Radiohead, yeah. right? And I had to get because this record is very much more. I mean, if anything, it like there's a cosmic, but it's really for me. It's like lyrically, it's more it comes from a kind of gospel soul thing. That's where I drew my inspiration. It's about love. It's big-hearted, warm record, mm-hmm. and every time I put my Radiohead head on this. It would go like, "What are you mentioning love about? Why you? You know, it's yeah. like." And I knew that I had to let go of that because it, it. I just had to let go of it, and that was quite hard to shake. And then you go back on tour with, you know, halfway through the record, you go on tour with the band, and so you come back with the Radiohead head on, and it took like four weeks to get rid of it to kind of, you know, to get in the place where it was a safe space. Yeah, to, you know, to do it. You know what I mean? It was sure. because I wanted it to be a very direct and warm record and very kind of open-hearted. And I, at the moment, I know that's not necessarily a very Radiohead thing. You know, Radiohead is a lot more oblique, I think, and it's sort of impressionist. Whereas I wanted mine to be very direct and colourful and like bang, yeah. you know, and open-hearted. Whereas Radiohead is, you get the love, but it's not so. You know, it comes from a different beauty. Yes, Do you, if that yeah, I'm trying sense. to think about, but but I think you said it before when you talked about Kubrick. Yeah, it's that sort of. Yeah, it's a Kubrick thing. It's a Kubrick thing. Yeah, and, it and really. I'm trying to think of a director who you are. Well, maybe it's the Nolan thing. Oh come well. on, give it to me. No, I mean Nolan's done a lot of work. I'm the I'm. <laughs> I'm uh, who who directs? Radiohead it? is Kubrick is Doctor Strange Love and 2001. Yeah, and you are. Uh-oh. Dude wears by car. <laughs> <laughs> Or the Goonies. <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com/buxton for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. I'm feeling very still. Hey, welcome back, podcats. Ed O'Brien there. There's a few links in the description of this podcast 
to bits and pieces that Ed and I spoke about. What have we got for you? Link to the music video for Ed's excellent song Brazil from his album Earth. Link to a YouTube playlist of bits and pieces from some of those hacked OK Computer mini discs. Link to a video of Ed earlier this year on YouTube teaching you how to play Creep by Radiohead. Only four chords, he reminds us. A fun one to pick up if you're learning how to play guitar. There is a link to a not especially great quality copy of Meeting People is Easy, Grant G's 1998 Radiohead doc. That's on YouTube. That's probably one of those things which will get taken down at some stage. But anyway, it's watchable. It's such a great doc. I would recommend if you're a Radiohead fan and you haven't seen it, that you get hold of a decent quality copy. There is a link to the only copy I could find of that early Radiohead video that we were talking about, Stop Whispering, the one with the old diving suit and the pin cushion and Tom crouching between some girders looking tortured. Sadly, it seems that most of those official early Radiohead videos have been redacted from the internet. I couldn't even find bad quality copies of anyone can play guitar and things like that but uh, there's that list of the 100 greatest guitarists by David Frick from 2010 also there is a link to the Dan Hawkins online bass player site if you're a regular podcat then you will know that Dan Hawkins offers a online bass playing service You can send him a track and he will lay down a bass part and send it back to you brilliantly and efficiently. I've used him to provide bass for lots of the jingles in this podcast before. And today it was the Star Trek jingle that Dan played bass over. I didn't, of course, write the Star Trek music. What a great theme tune that is. Anyway, there's a link to Dan Hawkins' online bass playing site should you like to add a bit of great old-fashioned analog human bass playing to your track what else have we got that's pretty much all the links oh no there's a link to one of the things that has really cheered me up in the last few weeks and that is a video of robbie williams playing a kind of scar version of his song angels on the horn section podcast alex horn of taskmaster fame has a fantastic podcast that he does with his band, The Horn Section. And if you haven't heard the podcast before, I very much recommend it. It's great. They just, well, it's a combination of Alex's bordering on obsessive enthusiasm with turning everything into a game and the brilliant improvising and comedy songwriting skills of his band, one of whom plays with the Robbie Williams touring band. So they got Robbie to be a guest on one of their isolation specials they recorded five i think five episodes earlier on in the lockdown and i only just got round to listening to them couple with tim key who's always great value one with max rushton one with rose matafeo and uh yeah one with robbie williams who was really good value and just committed magnificently to this um rearranged version of angels at the end and it was so good And the video of them all playing it remotely on the Zoom feeds is excellent as well. What else? In about six weeks' time, I think, my book, Ramble Book, 
will finally be available in hardback physical form. If you've already heard the audiobook, I've put links in the description of the podcast, obviously, to all these things. But just because you've heard the audiobook doesn't mean to say you can just ignore the hardback. No, 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 no. It's been beautifully designed, the physical thing. And it's got pictures and photographs and amazing illustrations from Helen Green. And it's been laid out by geniuses at HarperCollins. And it's a beautiful, lovingly created object. You can order a signed copy right now by visiting the Waterstones website, link in the description. It's, uh, there are a limited number of signed copies, so I don't guarantee that there will be one available. They may have sold out. I'm just saying, that's a, it may happen. I didn't sign all that many, so make haste. Rosie! Come on, let's head back. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support on this episode. Thanks to Matt Lamont for his increasingly brilliant edit Wisbottery. Thanks to Ed O'Brien for his time, his good humour, his friendship, his musical skills and just everything. Thanks to Acast for supporting this, another great, great podcast. Why not check out the dizzying diversity of voices represented on their website? And thanks to you, most especially, podcasts. You listened right to the end. You're great, and I appreciate it. And also, did you know that, well, I love you. Bye!